from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Happy birthday to St. Louis Public Radio. My memory has to do with the opera broadcast years ago. Midnight till morning, we'd have a station for two uh, eight-hour shifts. Back when, you know, we probably had six months. And I became addicted to it. I started listening uh, at home. I'm one of your most avid listeners. I just still listen all the time. What ended um, up keeping you in radio instead of sort of following this path that you thought you were on? Well, I, I'll say I got bit by the bug of, of, of radio, and, and particularly public radio, and um, I basically was having a ball. And then I would uh, you know, train the announcer in how to say the words, because... How to pronounce are, these composers. How to pronounce it. I'm Sarah Fenske. Something that I've done for the rest of my career, actually. <laughs> Fifty years ago today, a new radio station made its first broadcast. KWMU had a one-man news department, a weather reporter, a staffer who did stock updates. In addition to news and arts interviews, it played music classical music, and the blues, jazz, and ragtime. Today, that station is still going strong, and that makes today St. Louis Public Radio's 50th birthday. And joining us now to share some memories from the station's five-decade and counting run is Mary Edwards. She worked at St. Louis Public Radio for 44 years, retiring as executive producer of this show in 2018. And even today, she continues as producer of the station's St. Louis Symphony broadcasts. Mary Edwards, welcome. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So, Mary, this was just a little bit before your time, but it was a former dean at the University of Missouri-St. Louis who helped shepherd this new KWMU into being. What do we know about his motivations for starting a radio station? Well, you know, I never talked with him about it, but uh, I would just have to assume that um, at that time, public radio stations were popping up because the Public Broadcasting Act had created uh, space on the dial for public stations, and they were specifically popping up at universities. Uh, At that time, UMSL was a very fledgling university, just a few years, I think six years in existence, and I think he saw right off the bat um, the value of having a public station for UMSL and also to serve the community. So he was he was part of this national wave, but sort of led the vanguard here in St. Louis. It was two years later that you showed up. What led you to this radio station? Well, it's kind of a crazy story. I was finishing my degree in music education, and I should say when I when I came to the university, they were just starting to build the station at the other end of the hall from where I was taking my music classes. And back then, they had a student staff that they uh, gave hours to in the middle of the nights on the weekend. And the general manager decided that he wanted them to play a classical music show for two hours on Friday night uh, instead of the rock music that they usually played. So they needed um, somebody, um, preferably a a music student, to program that show. And um, a friend of mine worked at the station, and she thought of me and asked me if I would want to do this. So... And and that show was hosted by Clark Hickman, and the newscaster was Mike Owens, who went on to some fame as a longtime KSDK reporter after a few stops in between. And then the first gentleman of the city of St. Louis, right? uh, Right now, uh, yes. Yeah. So this was like sort of early days here, and you were a music education major. You're thinking of a career in teaching. That was my aim. 
And instead, but, you, you start hosting this two-hour program. Well, I programmed the, the two-hour program. I, I selected the music, and then I would uh, you know, train the announcer in how to say the words because... How to pronounce are, these composers. How to pronounce it. Something that I've done for the rest of my career, actually. <laughs> That's the constant that has stayed with you through all these changes. Well, so one thing I think that may surprise younger public radio fans is you're talking about this station was, was playing rock most of the time. Like, this was more a music station than a news station at that point. Well, no, actually, the, the, the professional hours, it was classical music and jazz, but uh, uh, the overnight hours on the weekend were given to the students, and they played rock They music. played rock. Right. Okay. No, the... the, the the rest of the yards, it was mostly classical music and then um, jazz on Friday and Saturday night and then a few things that, that you mentioned, some blues and ragtime. So th- this idea of it just not being news, I mean, that I think would surprise people. So public radio stations were, were um, growing all over the country, but these were not public radio stations the way we think of them today. Were they carrying broadcasts from national public radio? Um Sporadically, I mean, National Public Radio had uh, music programs that, w- that that we aired, and they did have some. I'm not sure if they had newscasts from the very beginning. I mean, Carl Castle goes way, way back, mm-hmm. but uh, most of our news was was done in house. But um, at the time um, that we went on the air, there was a behemoth station, KMOX, ah. with a staff of thousands, well, hundreds, um, who who did news all the time, and uh, with a staff of one news person, the general manager knew that there was no way that they, that they could compete with that. And, and another thing is, is that in, in, uh, when the station goes on the air, they take a look at the market and see what's missing. And um, in many cases, it was classical music. So mm-hmm. our, our format was not un, unsimilar to many around the country. Um, in the day, I used to go to the uh, music personnel conference, and you know we'd have 100 or more people that at stations just like ours, hmm. who, whose primary product was classical music. So it was in 1979 uh, that the station began receiving programming by satellite. What were you doing for programming before that? It was pretty much all local? Well, it was local, and then uh, we did have some uh, some programming, both from NPR, and then there was a syndicated service called Parkway Productions. So they... Uh, we did have one five kilohertz line connected to NPR, but that was only for for talk, and it, and that wasn't very good. So there's no way you could do music on that. So they would literally mail real real tapes to the stations, and um, and then we would return them. And these uh, these programs, we got five programs a week from Parkway Productions, and they called it the bicycle method. So I got a big box with the five programs. We aired them one week, then I put them put them in the mail to send to KBIA in Columbia, and they aired them the next week. And then they, you know, you know, they came with these um, address labels, and then they would send it on to the next station. So and and that's how they did it. So I understand this KWMU, as it was known at the time, this ended up becoming the first radio station in St. Louis to have a compact disc player. This was in 1983. Did that change how that whole system worked? Well, the reason for that is that the manufacturers wanted to introduce them, and there weren't very many players, so um, they typically picked a public radio station that played classical music um, to send the, the CD players to. So the first one we got was a, was a uh, Magnavox that was made by Philips, and it was a little difficult to use. And then we got one from Sony. So you know, so we literally had the first two that that, that came into the city. 
and the lack of players didn't keep the record companies from from making CDs and selling them to record stores. So um, our production manager, Barry Hufker, would go around on, on the weekends to various record stores and take the CD player and they would demonstrate the CDs and then people would buy these things even though the players at that time didn't exist very much just to, to kick it off. So you're showing off this new technology around right. the city. And then also in the broadcast, was that almost an advertisement for here's how great this sound can sound? Well, we, we started integrating them, in, obviously, into our system. I mean, the advantage for me of CDs was the fact of maintaining a, a vinyl record collection was very difficult. You could take a, a record out of the jacket and it could have surface noise and, you know, and even scratches and, you know, once it was handled. And when we played them back, we had to actually clean them, physically clean them before we put them on. And if it was a symphony that you had to flip the record, then we had to flip the record and people had to wait while they cleaned it because otherwise, it, it, you know, the, the, the sound would, would suffer. So it, they were much easier to store, much easier to cue. You know, there's a little digital readout, and so it was great. Now, there are some people, and, and, and today we're actually having a resurgence of, of vinyl, and there's some people that think the vinyl sounded better. So audiophiles, I mean, there's been an argument clear through. And, in fact, I, I, I remember our production manager, Barry Hufker, getting into um, discussions with uh, a man in town who was a real audiophile who swore that his high-end turntable could beat our CD player. But, he might well have been right. But, you know, it was it was much easier. And so it, as more CDs came out, we gradually totally replaced the uh, the record collection. And um, in the early 90s, uh, they did renovation of the space in Lucas Hall. You're and, still at UMSL at that point. Well, well yeah, we were in UMSL until 2012. Mm-hmm. And we had to move everything out, and so we actually sold the record collection. I mean, it was painful for me to see people hovering over these these uh, records, and you know, some people long gone and put little notes on them, and it, you know, it was painful for me. But you know, we sold them for a dollar a disc because um, the the CDs were so much easier to store, and and. You know, you could argue about sounding better, but if it doesn't have surface noise and doesn't get stuck, yeah. which records sometimes did, um, it, yeah. it, was, it was a lot easier. So you mentioned selling these for a dollar a piece. I understand that um, the station in the beginning, it, money was really tight back when you first started. Give, it, give us some examples it, of it this. It was. Well, I, I came, uh, my first paying job was in uh, May of 74. They actually offered it to me the previous month, but I said, I have to finish finish my last paper and then I'll come. And so the fiscal year ended June 30, and they were already out of money for expenses, and they couldn't afford liquid paper. So we were literally watering down the liquid paper. Because back then, we had a detailed program guide, and before any kind of automated typesetting, somebody had to sit there and hand type that every month. And so we used liquid paper. I know there are probably some people now who don't even know what I'm talking about. But um, Oh, it's sad to think what these kids are missing out on. Liquid paper was so fun. Uh, but Mary, thinking about your trajectory, you'd been thinking, you know, you'd be a music teacher. And this work sounds really hard. It sounds like there wasn't a lot of money. Uh, what ended up keeping you in radio instead of sort of following this path that you thought you were on? Well, I, I'll say I got bit by the bug of, of radio, and, and particularly public radio, and um, I basically was having a ball. I mean, initially, I was getting paid to listen to classical music, and, you know, what's better than that if that's if that's your music of choice? So yeah. I was still using my music knowledge, 
And um, I, I did wind up teaching a radio production class at Webster University for 26 years. So I did get to teach. And then I, I, I did a little, uh, you know, directed choirs at church and things. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I did use that some. But that radio but, bug but, bit you. And then, and then my job just kept evolving over all those years. So I, I, I did lots of different things. And it was always interesting. And I was really dedicated to uh, the, the mission of the station to serve the public. I mean, um, at, at one time, somebody suggested I could make more money to go, you know, to go to either commercial radio or into, you know, you know, some business where they just make things. And I just couldn't imagine doing that. Uh, our, our goal is to serve the listener at a commercial station. Their first goal is to make money for the parent company and the shareholders. And then the second there's an allegiance to the advertisers, and that is just so foreign from what we do that I, you know, I, I just couldn't do it. We're talking today to Mary Edwards. She is a longtime St. Louis Public Radio staffer. We are celebrating 50 years of the station's existence. Mary is a past recipient of the station's Lifetime Achievement Award. She was inducted into the St. Louis Media Hall of Fame in 2017, um, and she worked here full-time for 44 years. So, boy, she knows this story better than anybody. We need to take a quick break, but we'll return shortly to continue this conversation with Mary and, and look back on these five decades. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. We are looking back on 50 years of this radio station, started 50 years ago today, broadcasting as KWMU. Of course, today we are St. Louis Public Radio. We're here today with Mary Edwards, uh, who worked full-time at the station for 44 years, retired as executive producer of this show in 2018. She continues today as producer of the station's St. Louis Symphony broadcasts. I'm actually going to go to the phone lines. Jerry is calling from O'Fallon. Jerry, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air again. <laughs> Good afternoon. I just wanted to say congratulations to Mary. Uh, I started, I was on the student staff from 1975 to 1977, so I remember her and uh, Mary Hufker, Charlie Benice, all those people very well, because uh, especially Charlie and um, Mary, because we would start at midnight, midnight till morning, we'd have a station for two uh, eight-hour shifts back when, you know, we probably had six listeners. But anyway, no, she's a, she's a, a very talented person, a great engineer. Uh, we seem to have a lot of the same friends. And um, I think it's just great that uh, she's had such a great career there. Jerry, I think, yeah, I mean, we, we all agree with that. Somebody has referred to Mary as the spine of the station through all those years. That's a great compliment. Jerry, Mary got hit by the radio bug, bit by the radio bug. You ended up leaving in a couple of years. You ever look back and think, man, I could have just stayed on at public radio. Well, you know, I dropped out to get into the airline business. And I always tell, I uh, used to correspond with uh, Bill McClellan a lot. 
And we went through everything that the news business, not necessarily public radio, but the news business went through about 10 years earlier with Ooh. consolidations, bankruptcies. And so we would both commiserate, but I can tell him and other people I knew that were still in the business uh, well, I know how you feel because that's exactly <laughs> what I went through. <laughs> Jerry, yeah. Well, it sounds like you made a good choice, even if you, you got hit by the troubles a whole decade earlier. Um, we're, we're grateful that you're still here with us today, and, and thank you for sharing that remembrance. If you have memories of St. Louis Public Radio through the years, things you miss that have changed, um, things that you don't miss, that you're happy that it changed, you can call us at 314-382-8255. Again, that's 382-TALK. Mary, the station moved from predominantly music to talk in 1996. Was that a matter of great controversy in a town that that sometimes it's hard to make changes in? Well, it was an evolution. Uh, We didn't just go straight from all classical music to all news. Um, By the time we made the switch in 1996, we were only airing six hours of classical music a day, five days a week. So it was only 30 hours because gradually we had added more and more news. Initially, it was it was a little bit of a controversy because I mentioned we didn't air uh, our original general manager Bob Thomas, um, you know, did not sign on to the very fledgling All Things Considered at that time. And I know you interviewed Lisa Napoli about the book about the founding mothers, and if you read that book, you would understand why. Yeah, it's not the show that it is today. Uh, they talked about how they started the show not knowing how it would end, and sometimes would have to play extended little music uh, beds to wait till the story came in. So anyway, he, so, he may have been wise at the time. He but, was wise at the time, but then, but then the show took but off. Then, but then eventually the show took off, and then people would move to St. Louis and call up. When do you hear all things considered? Well, we don't. And uh, and this was you know this was pre morning edition, so it did get to be somewhat of a controversy. Um, the administration of the university at the time. Uh, was the feeling that we needed to stick with music. If we talked very long, we might lose all our listeners. So it it, it was long and involved, but eventually uh, we came to an understanding that uh, that the general manager should decide what shows that we air. And and, and we did uh, we, we did start airing morning edition for two hours in the morning in 1980, but then it was um, 82 before we actually added All Things Considered and then expanded Morning Edition to four hours from five to nine instead of just five to seven. And was your sense this was something that even if it was maybe initially people weren't sure about this, that, that once you started doing it, people were tuning in for this? Oh, yes, people were tuning in. And I and I knew people who, who are classical music fans, and they said, you know, they liked the, the news programs. They didn't resent the fact that, that we took it out. Now, some of them weren't really happy at the very end when we took all the classical music off but yeah but there's there's going to be evolution one of the big pieces of evolution was also uh this was in 2012 this is when the station left the umsel campus moved to a new 27,000 square foot home in grand center i'm speaking from this home today this is a, an amazing lovely place that must have been a big change that was one of the happiest days of my life and also it was initially Difficult because it's really hard to move a radio station and keep it on the air. And initially, you know, we I'd, I'd come in in the morning. Well, well, basically, we we broadcasted till the Thursday before, and then we had a pre-recorded show on Friday. And then I walked in on Monday morning, and there were still men wiring things up. So um, and you had to go on the air had, that and day. So, so they'd tell me what works, and then sometimes there'd be you know, little hiccups along the way. 
But it was just uh, wonderful to be, I mean, in our building in Lucas Hall, there were classrooms right above us, and it seemed like every five minutes they would move their chairs, and oh. you could hear that. So, uh, you know, we, we complained, and they said, well, if you want to pay for carpeting, you can, but, uh, you know, it's a classroom. they got to move their desks if they want to move their desks. So, so the station was built right. I mean, they, they did it everything right and um the studios are isolated we we got a tour before everything was put up and we could see where the studio we're sitting in is not connected to that hallway out there there's a you know there's a buffer you know it's it, it, it floats yeah and the fact that we had more studios and 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 this is a silly thing to even talk about but i don't know how people wouldn't realize how much time i spent trying to get people Gus for the talk show to find us on the Umsel campus and to find a parking place at a peak time for parking. College and, campuses are tough. And, and, the, yeah. the, and they got better about labeling, but early on, some of the streets weren't even named. So I had to send all these detailed instructions. I had to send them a parking permit. And um, eventually we were able to email it. But at one point, I had to physically mail them a parking permit. So the fact that I could just say, Come to thirty six fifty one Olive, and it's even the with no other no other um, instructions than that, they would find us. So. Yeah, no, that move was huge, and that also opened up. Um, there was more room here. That opened up for the merge with the St. Louis Beacon, which just created such a huge newsroom. Went to forty newsroom employees at that point. So many changes. I want to go back to the phone lines. Sylvia is calling from Carlisle, Illinois. Uh, Sylvia, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Thank you. And all I want to say is that I would be bereft without NPR, without St. Louis Public Radio, absolutely bereft. My memory has to do with the opera broadcast years ago. It helped foster my love for opera, which I uh, continue to have today. So uh, thank you for that. And lastly, I am so sorry that you're leaving, Sarah Finsky, but... Good luck to you on your new gig. Well, Sylvia, thank you you so much. Take care. Yes, thank you. And how wonderful to hear that this arts coverage inspired a lifelong love for Sylvia. And that's, I think, one of the things that comes out of of public radio, even from just the the news side of things, not just the news broadcast, but you end up learning about new things that end up turning you on to things that are so exciting. And it's always gratifying for me to hear people, no matter what it is that that they found useful, to know that we're doing something that people care about and that they benefit from. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. I'm going to squeeze in one more call here. Uh, David is calling from Florissant. David, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. And happy birthday to St. Louis Public Radio. Thank you, David. It's I, time um, somebody said it. I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> I began listening. Uh, my therapist at the time, this was back in the 80s, uh, in his uh, reception room, he had a St. Louis Public Radio playing on on the radio so that's when i was exposed to it for the first time Hmm. and i became addicted to it i started listening uh, at home and i became a sustaining member in 93 uh i'm still a sustaining member i love the station uh there is no bs on here no commercials it's intelligent radio it is not for everyone but for anyone who wants to be informed and uh, educate themselves. 
St. Louis Public Radio is the place to be. David, thank you so much for that. I feel like somebody needs to grab audio of what David just said and play that ad nauseum at the next pledge drive because he just said it so beautifully. And Mary, hearing from people where this station has meant a lot to them, that's got to feel good for, for you, the spine of the station, to hear how much people have appreciated that. It does feel good. Yeah, And even my own son, when he uh, took a class at Webster University where they asked him to listen to, uh, the, the teacher would make them listen to the station for 30 minutes and then write something about it. And he, and, and he said, well, it's kind of annoying because it was on every radio in the house when I was a kid. But if you want to know what's going on, you absolutely have to listen to that station. So <laughs> I'm glad he confirmed that. Mary, last question for you today. Um, you know, you had such a great long career here and it was 2018. Um, you decided you didn't want to do that full time anymore. You continue to do these symphony broadcasts, but you were bit by that radio bug. Have you been in withdrawal from that full time involvement? Well, I think it was time for me to give up the 24-7 part of it. Um, I've, I've stayed, um, as you said, I, I produce the St. Louis Symphony broadcast, which is very gratifying. Go back to my, you know, it uses my music knowledge, so I kind of have come a full circle. But I'm one of your most avid listeners. I just still listen all the time, and, um, and that will always continue. But um, the fact that I got to stay on, I think, made it better. If I had had to totally sever it, I think I, I would have had a huge withdrawal. But yeah. I, I kind of had, um, I wouldn't even say a glide path. But when I walked out of, out of here the last day of August, and it was Labor Day weekend, and I didn't have to worry about whether the archive recording on Monday was, was going to work or not, you know, with somebody else's job, I was happy to pass the mantle over to Alex Warrior. <laughs> and that is now the executive producer of our show. Well, Mary Edwards, I want to thank you so much for joining us and, and letting us reminisce about these 50 years. My pleasure. And we should mention, beginning August 4th, an exhibit at our headquarters here in Grand Center will feature archival photos, bumper stickers, even tote bags. You can look for a street party celebration in addition this fall. For a timeline of St. Louis Public Radio's history, visit stlpr.org 50. And now you may be wondering, what about the future? Well, Tina Pamantuan became CEO of the station in December. She has more than 20 years of experience in public media as a journalist, an educator, and a station leader, and she talked to producer Alex Hoyer yesterday about her plans for the future. I think my vision for the station is around the way in which we really center equity at the core of all that we do at the station. And for many people, that's a stretch because they ask, well, that sounds like it could be so many things, Tina, so what does it mean? And I think it's around going back to the very heart of the mission of public radio, which is this idea that it is public, and that at every step of the way, you are either inviting people in or not inviting them in. And I think St. Louis Public Radio has done both in its history. It has invited people in, and it has not invited people in. And my intention during my tenure is to make sure that we are really reflecting the communities that we are representing. CEO Tina Pamantuan says centering equity means examining the voice of St. Louis Public Radio. That includes on-air voices, editorial objectives, and taking a look at reporting beats. All of those factors, she says, influence how the station can be more inclusive. And Tina also laid out a grand vision for the radio station's journalism. I would really love to see STLPR really claim the space of local journalism in St. Louis and Rolla and Quincy, where we also broadcast, um, because 
up until now, STLPR has done a wonderful job in terms of its breaking news, its um, its features, and its public affairs as it relates to local journalism. But I don't think we're really quite there yet at the point where we are known as the source. And so what I would like to see going forward is for us to not only claim the space, but really like really engage with our community so that we know what are the issues that aren't being addressed, what are the issues that are not being covered, what are the beats that we really should have within our newsroom and our public affairs areas, and and be, and become known for that. Because it's so important for every community and every market to have a leading news organization that really takes on the responsibility of that space. And I believe, you know, as, um, as the landscape of media has changed so much over the last few decades, that this is a space that public radio very naturally plays into. And that is St. Louis Public Radio CEO Tina Pamantuan. Tina has been in town a few months now, and she's had a chance to explore a little of St. Louis. She says she got a sense of the spirit of the city at a recent Cardinals game, and she enjoyed a concert at Jazz St. Louis. Happy birthday to St. Louis Public Radio. Coming up next, Don Corrigan's new book is Amazing Webster. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.